Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2, and as just to remind you that 1 Peter is a book written to exiles. 1 Peter is written to those who understand that this world is not their home, they're sojourning, they're passing through. And I think it's appropriate these days to remember that reality. And I think with every passing week, it seems like that the evidence mounts that this world is not going to ever satisfy our needs and it's not going to be the place we wished it would be or hoped it would be. It's, it's broken. It's beyond our ability to repair. And we're passing through it, awaiting a kingdom that will never end, that Jesus will institute. But as we walk through this life, we have clear directions from God's word on how we as Christians are to live. But I I think it's important that during this time, the time of our exile, the time of our passing through this life, we, we really understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. And I just want to highlight a little bit of history here to, to put some context. Jesus, founder, obviously, of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith, began it all. He preached the gospel, preached repentance, and what happened to him? He was misunderstood, opposed, nailed to a cross by the Romans at the hands of an angry mob. Those who followed him, the apostles who learned from him, all faced martyr's death, except John, who was exiled. In the 60s AD, about 30 years after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, Nero became the emperor of Rome. And Nero, as those of us who have studied some of this first century history and have actually heard some of the biblical backgrounds of 1 Peter, know that Nero was a cruel dictator who hated Christians, who blamed them for all their problems and invented ways to try to marginalize, oppress, and exterminate Christianity from the Roman Empire. He wasn't alone in doing that. In the third century, Emperor Decius uh, became one, the one in power, and when he became the one in power, he required citizens to participate in pagan sacrifices. When Christians refused to get involved, they were arrested, they were imprisoned, they were sometimes tortured, and they were often executed. Toward the end of the third century and into the fourth century, Diocletian was the emperor under whom the persecution became such a high level, a high amount of uh, persecution, it was as if he was literally trying to exterminate every Christian influence from the empire, trying to burn Bibles, trying to eradicate churches, eliminate them and their message. Some years later, of course after that, Constantine made it legal to become a Christian, Years later, you get into the Middle Ages, you get into the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church begins to replace Imperial Rome as the high authority in Western civilization. And the Roman Catholic Church becomes even so dead set on their own agenda that those who speak out against the Roman Catholic ways and their doctrine and theology become persecuted. John Huss is burnt at the stake for preaching the gospel in the 15th century. The Roman Catholic Church instigates the burning of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, uh, burning them at the stake for defending the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. In the 1600s and into the 1700s, many Christians then fled Europe and they came to America, a refuge for them, a place where they could worship freely, 
a place where they could set up churches without any fear of being oppressed by the authority above them. We're thankful for the fact that our nation has been set on Judeo-Christian values. We're thankful for that and for the freedoms it has afforded us. We've reaped so many advantages and blessings to be able to preach the gospel. And America has been a place where lots of Christians under their freedom have preached and missionaries have been sent around the globe because of this. And yet we know 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Darkness always has had a death grip on the world. That no matter where you go, no matter what nation you can even start, no matter what land you can travel to, that there exists a deeper evil that is behind. It is the invisible evil that is the prince of the power of the air, Satan, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, he has influence over every square inch of this globe. And he uses people, he uses worldviews, he uses ideologies, all to fight against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christians, no matter where they go, no matter what continent they're on, no matter what country they're in, they are always going to be in some way misunderstood, marginalized, and even at times opposed and oppressed. We are pilgrims. It's been nice for the last couple hundred years to be in a nation that has given so much freedom to Christians. And yet I would think that's something more of the anomaly. If you look at all the rest of history and all the places Christianity has gone and all the, all the ages, always, in every place, Christians have faced persecution, opposition, misunderstanding. They have been pushed, pushed to the borders of society, and we have been here in our nation enjoying so much freedom, and yet it's, it's kind of scary to think about what could happen in the next generation as Christians are more and more misunderstood more and more seen as strange and odd and marginalized. We are people who are pilgrims. We don't have a home. We can live in a nation. We're thankful for freedoms. Oh, how thankful we are. But what happens when even the nation we live in, the world we live in, begins to become more and more suspicious of Christians? How do we live then? How do we, like our brothers and sisters in the first century, when, when Peter wrote this letter, how do we, how do we bear up and be faithful under a, an emperor named Nero who wants to exterminate you? I think we've got to think about these questions. These are questions we would have never thought about. And yet in our day we're thinking, man, it doesn't seem all that unlikely that Christians are going to be misunderstood, marginalized, opposed, perhaps oppressed, perhaps persecuted, it doesn't seem very unlikely that that could happen in our lifetimes. Amen? I mean, I think that our, our, our Christian witness and the truths we stand for, the exclusivity of the gospel and various other absolute truth claims are going to be seen as more and more so out of touch with the rest of the world that to even say something that would not fit the narrative of what the world is preaching is their own gospel would be to put ourselves in danger. How do we live? How do we gear up for this? I want to draw your attention. There are many things in 1 Peter, but I want to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where specifically 
Peter talks to these Christians about how to relate to their government. How to relate to their government, which was, in first century Rome, an empire. And again, the, the, the empire was ruled at this point, at the writing of this letter, by Nero. How do Christians who are under God live under a government? That's the title of the message, Under God, Under Government. It can be confusing. It seems like, well, uh, you know, if God's my authority, what do I have to do with this government? Maybe if God's my authority, I don't have to listen to a government. Maybe I just need to totally listen to a government and not sure how that fits into relating to my you know, Christian faith. How does this all fit together? I think we need to think about this, and I'm thankful that the Word of God actually is very clear on this. Let's read it. I'm going to read verses 13 to 17. And we're going to just unpack what's going on in these verses. Uh, verse 13, <clears throat> be subject for the Lord's sake every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as set by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish People, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I want you to feel a little bit about a little bit of the radical nature of this text. You're in first century Rome. You're, you may be scattered for persecution that's been happening. You get a letter from the apostle. How am I supposed to live in these days? Uh, my life is being threatened. Nero wants to exterminate my faith. And here he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and he even singles out the emperor. Not only in the verse 13, but also there, verse 17, the emperor himself, Nero, is to be honored. Amazing. Radical. Extreme. There are three imperatives in this text. Three imperatives. We want to just look at them one by one, and we're going to try to unpack it and help us see what our role is in a world where the government might not be aligned with what we think needs to happen. Verse 13 has our first imperative in straight, the first two words, be subject. There's our first imperative. As Christians, our first imperative as we think about how we relate to the government is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Let's look at that word, be subject. In Greek, hupo staso. Hupo has the idea of being under something placing yourself underneath a thing. Stasso is to put yourself. And so what he's saying, be subject, is to place yourself under the authority of that institution. Every human institution, he says. That is to say, every human institution you're a part of. If you join the Rotary Club, you submit to the Rotary Club's authorities. If you join the Kiwanis Club, I'm trying to think of clubs off the top of my head, you submit to their rules. If you're not a part of that club, you don't need to submit to their rules. But wherever you are in an institution, whether it be a government, whether it be a school, whether it be whatever kind of institution, you submit yourself to it because you're doing it for the Lord's sake. 
We need to see this. We need to see that be subject. The idea of submission is woven into the creation. Okay? You cannot, we cannot, no one can escape the reality that we are people who need to submit. The very fact that you're not the creator of the universe means that you have to submit. In fact, submission was something that was prior to the fall. Prior to even sin entering the world, Adam and Eve needed to submit to God and listen to his commands. They were not God, right? There were uh, rules that God made about which tree they could eat and which trees they needed to, they could enjoy and which tree they couldn't enjoy. That was all part of them submitting to their creator because they were not the creator. So the very fact of their existence in this world not as God, but as creator, means they have to submit. And then if you look at how God made the world, submission is woven into society itself. And scripture often addresses these. Children submit to parents. Workers submit to bosses. In this very text, just right after our section, slaves submit to masters. Wives submit to husbands. Church members submit to elders. All of us submit to Christ. All of us submit to his word. All Christians and all humanity actually is called to be in an order where there is submission, where there is authority. And authority, contrary to the message of our world, is a good thing. It's a gift. It's a God-ordained thing that God gives to his creation because he loves them. And so there is this call all throughout the Bible that we need to be submitting to the authorities in our life because that's God's order in his creation. And we need to say this. <clears throat> There's an ideology at play in our world that is diametrically opposed to the Christian worldview on this. Just, just opposite direction, completely opposed to the Christian worldview. I just kind of briefly painted about God being creator and us, because we're creatures, we submit to God's ordinances and God's authorities. There's a diametrically opposed worldview that, that calls itself a liberating movement, but it's actually all about destroying God-given parameters. It's all about that. And they believe that only freedom, freedom will only come once all God-given authorities and all God-given institutions and all God-given constructs are obliterated, then we will finally be free. Think about this. You, you can, you'll, you'll be able to identify it as soon as I start labeling these things. <clears throat> it's when the world indoctrinates boys and girls to hate their gender. It's when men are taught and pressured to hate their masculinity. It's when women are taught to hate their femininity. It's when mothers are told that having a family and raising their children is like being in chains. It's oppressive. It's a mindset that teaches fathers to be desperately afraid of leadership. It teaches children to see their parents as incompetent goons that don't understand what's going on in their lives. It teaches citizens to hate their governments. It's an ideology that is actually bent on destroying all social constructs that God has actually given us. It wants to destroy gender. It wants to destroy marriage. It wants to destroy any kind of parameter and parameters even that God has given us. 
They're looking to, that's a mindset that will, if it is released in the world, will release all kinds of havoc in the created order. If it's embraced, gender is distorted, marriage is obliterated, fatherhood and motherhood become archaic and unfashionable, law enforcement is demonized, and anyone who thinks otherwise is labeled misunderstanding or intolerant. So we need to get back to the Bible and what the Bible teaches about authority. You can smell it in the air, right? This anti-authoritarian kind of mindset. That anyone who's in authority is to be viewed with suspicion. And I think there's a corrective here. You see it? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every human institution. Romans 13, verse 1, says this. Listen to this. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So if there's anybody with any authority anywhere, God put that person in authority. And to resist that authority is to resist that which God put into place. So Christians of all people are people who submit to governing authorities. We submit to authority. We love authority because authority, we understand, is a gift from God that God uses to protect his people. In Romans 13, verse 4, (laughs) Paul writes, the government is God's servant. That word servant in Greek is the same word for deacon. That God has given governments as like a deacon to society, to be servants of society, to help society. He says, God has given a government, uh, God's, uh, the government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, Paul says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So the government, Paul describes as someone who bears the sword. That means they have the authority to punish that which is evil and to protect that which is good and that those who are innocent. He, it goes on, is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evil doer. What is the government? The government is meant to protect its citizens from those who do evil. That's what the government's meant to do. And so it's a good thing. It's meant to protect and preserve innocent life. It's a gift from God. It's like a deacon. Now, of course, this does not mean, and we are not implying that governments never get uh, get out of line. Do governments get out of line? Absolutely. And the very letter that we're reading is all about uh, uh, people who are living under a government who has become, become uh, abusive of its own power. There are times that governments uh, go out of their lane and they begin doing things they're not meant to do and they abuse the power that God has given them. So what do we do in those situations? Well, that's the very situation that Peter is addressing. So what do we do in that situation? We are subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. In other words, it doesn't change. It doesn't change if your emperor's Nero. It doesn't change if your government's oppressive. You still are subjecting to them. Why? Look at this phrase. It's so important to see how part of the motivation for subjecting ourselves to the government is this. Be subject. What are the next words? You see that? For the Lord's sake. In other words, You don't submit to the government because the government is good and wise and awesome and does everything right. You don't submit to the government because it has the best policies and you agree with everything it says. In fact, if if we only agreed with the government or if we only only obeyed and followed the government when we exactly 
sorry, exactly agreed with everything it said, we wouldn't actually be demonstrating any kind of submission. Submission is when we don't always see eye to eye, but yet we say, for the Lord's sake, because my king, the true king, the one who actually has authority over the governing authorities, he has told me to follow them. And so for his sake, I will follow this government. I will submit to them. Now, of course, since we're doing it for the Lord's sake, that also means we will never follow a government into sin. The moment the government says that we need to sin, that we need to do that which God forbids, or that we are forbidden to do that which God requires, we say, sorry, I'm serving the Lord. I'm not serving the government, ultimately. I'm ultimately serving the Lord. I'm doing all this for the Lord's sake. Now, look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there are foolish people in the world, according to the Bible. Uh, how blunt that is. There are foolish people out there who are ignorant, and they have a lot of things to say about Christians, and they think Christians are one way. They have opinions about Christians. They, they call them names or, or whatever, and what Peter says is that God's will for us is that as we submit to the governing authorities and we do good to the society that God has put us in, we actually silence the critics. That that's what we're intended to do. That ignorance and foolishness of people who want to label Christians because they have some caricature in their mind, when they actually see us saying, I'm willing to follow the rules. I'm not here to be an insurrectionist. I'm not all about anarchy. I'm here to be a good citizen. As Christians are the, as we follow the word of God, I think we strive to be the best possible citizens we can be. And as we do that, the idea is that it puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there's an aspect that our witness is on the line, right? Our witness is on the line. So how do we uh, relate to the government is a lot related to how we reach our community. Because our witness is on the line. If we just are dismissive and careless of everything the government instructs us to do, I think we can create a bad reputation. It seems to be the implication here. We could have a bad reputation. We could actually give more ammunition to the people who already have reason to doubt Christianity because we're terrible citizens if we just defy any government's regulations. And so there's our first statement. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Let's look at our second imperative, our second command. Peter's given us a string of commands. First, be subject. Here's second. Live free. Live free. You see it in verse, 10, verse 16. Look at what it says. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What does he mean here? Why does he slip this in? Why is he talking about being subjection to the governing authorities? And then he has this little statement about freedom. He wants us to live like free people. And here's what I think he means. Because you're going to be under a government, but you're not a slave to that government. You, you, you want to submit to a government, but ultimately you're not serving that government. That government's not actually your master. You're doing this, remember? You're doing this for the Lord's sake. You are a free person. You do not need to follow that government into sin. You need to subject yourself to it, but you also need to understand that you're voluntarily subjecting yourself to it. You're doing it freely. You're doing this because you love the Lord and you love your community and you want to have a good witness to them. You're not ultimately doing it because you're a slave to the government. You, want, you need to remember that. The government's not our master. 
And he goes on to say, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And I think what he means by that is there are some people who are tempted to say, Christ is our Lord, we're free in Christ. Government's not our Lord. The government has no authority over us. We can do whatever we want. And so we're free. So I don't have to follow the rules. And I think he's saying, well, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. That would be like using your freedom as a cover for actual evil. God's way is to say, no, you're absolutely free. You are not to be bossed around by a government. Rather, you're to see yourself as subjecting yourself to it voluntarily, but not for the sake of the government, but for the sake of your Lord, the Lord over that government. So you worship Him in your subjection to the authority God has put you in. Living, now listen to this. This is ironic. This is a little bit of a paradox. Live as people who are free, first statement, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Now look at this last phrase. But living as servants of God. Living as doulos, slaves of God. You see the irony, the paradox there? Live free as God's slave. True freedom, this is so important for us to get, true freedom, listen, is not the absence of all limitations. That is a lie. Parents, teach your children that. True freedom is not eliminating all limits, all parameters. That is not freedom. That is a lie. And that is an ideology that's out there that if I am going to have true freedom, I need all constraints, I need all limits, I need all authorities out of my life or else I'm oppressed and unable to be free. The opposite is true. Listen to this. The only way to true biblical freedom is to say, I'm a slave of God. And as a slave of God, I am the freest of all men. I can be a servant of all people. I can be a servant of my community. I can be a servant of my government. Because ultimately, I'm a servant of God. I'm a slave of God. And therefore, I'm free. Don't ever believe that freedom means no limitations. Freedom means unhindered self-expression. That's a lie. It's an absolute lie that is so much a part of our world. Let me just use a couple of illustrations to show this. Imagine a fish in the sea. A fish in the sea that is just so frustrated by that oppression that the water has in his life. How limiting that for that poor fish. He has to swim in an ocean? Why can't he just come on land? He wants to be on land. That would be more freedom. He wants to be freedom of, free of those restraints. He wants to be free of the, the water that forces him to only stay in, a, in, a, in that little you know, ocean. He wants to come on the land. That would be more freedom. Of course, what happens if he comes on the land? He dies. He destroys himself. And any other fish he convinces to come up on the land with him, he destroys them too. Imagine a train. Train runs on what? Tracks. I asked my son Jack. He's going to know that answer right on. Train tracks are his game. Trains run on tracks. Imagine a poor train saying these tracks are so restrictive. These tracks are so oppressive. Constraints are just holding me back from being me. I need to be free from the tracks. You know what? As soon as that train is free from tracks, what do we call it? We call it a train wreck. 
because it destroys itself and it destroys property around it. It destroys. Parameters are good. Parameters are a gift. Freedom is not the absence of parameters. Freedom is not the absence of limits. Listen, freedom is the presence of right limitations. It is the presence of God's parameters. True freedom is living within God's defined reality. In the moment you try to get outside God's parameters, we start acting like fish who want to live out of water, like trains who want to get off their tracks, and we end up destroying ourselves and destroying people around us. And so what Peter is saying here is the paradox of the Christian life is that true freedom, true joy, true life is in slavery to Jesus Christ. That is our greatest privilege to call ourselves slaves of the King of Kings. The greatest blessing you'll ever know is to say, I am Christ's. I will live for him and do all things for his glory. And I'm laying aside my rights to serve him and to serve his people and to be on his mission in the world. I'm free from every other parameter that the world would set on me, but I am living myself to live freely in the parameters that God has defined. You'll be as free as a fish swimming that big sea, as a train running down those tracks, doing exactly what God has intended you to do, go, as much as you can remember and live according to God's parameters that we find in his word. So live free. And freedom is found in understanding God's parameters, God's authorities, and subjecting ourselves to them. Here's our third imperative. I'm going to just use one word. It's actually a string of imperatives. We're going to use the word honor because that's the word that's first and it's the word that's used twice. Honor. So be subject, be free, and honor. See, this is the third imperative. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's just look at these real quick. Honor everyone. The word for honor here is a word that has to do with the value you place on something. If you go into the store and something's really cheap and then something else is really expensive, there's a sim- the, the, the word that's being used here is often used to describe sums of money. How much are you willing to spend on something is the amount of honor or the amount of value or the amount of worth that you place on it. So this word honor that he's describing, he's saying when you think of other people, you want, to pres- you, you want to have thoughts, you want to have a mindset that that person is worthy of honor. They, they are highly valuable to me. They have worth. They have dignity. And therefore, I should respect them. I should love them. I should treat them well. And so these words, honor everyone. There is not a single person that you should not honor. And, and in case you want more proof of that, He says, honor the emperor. I mean, of all the people that Christians would have been tempted to think they should not have to honor, it would be their emperor who's trying to wipe them out. And yet, Peter says, honor him. Honor everyone. Everyone. I think we need to hear this these days. We we have a tendency to want to dishonor people who disagree with us. Uh, we're, We're not very good in our day, let's be honest, of disagreeing with someone and yet respecting and loving. And yet disagreement will happen, has happened, will continue to happen. 
until Jesus returns, there will be disagreement. But what this is teaching us is that there will be people with whom you disagree, but you must honor them. You must value them. You must treat them with respect. We don't do the ad hominem arguments and attack the man type stuff. That's not what Christians do. We honor. Honor all people. Honor everyone. Secondly, love the brotherhood. See, we are to honor everyone, but there seems to be, Peter's pointing to, a unique love, an agape love that we ought to feel for the church. That's the brotherhood. See, God has created everybody in his own image, and therefore they're worthy of dignity and respect. We should honor them. Every person comes from Adam, and so we should honor everyone, treat them with dignity and respect. But then there's not everyone who has been born again by the Spirit of God, been redeemed by the blood of His Son, has been transformed from darkness into light and become a worshiper. You see, the gospel is this, that God created all people for His own glory and that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we deserve the righteous wrath of God. But God in His grace has given us His Son and His Son has come to live the life we could never live, to die on the cross, the, the death that we deserve, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive right now, and he extends free forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts in him, who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ, sins are forgiven. And so there is a unique bond of the people who have been come, uh, been brought out of darkness and into the light, and they're bonded now by the Spirit, and, and the, Peter here calls them the brotherhood. This is the church. There's a, a unique love we ought to have for the brotherhood. Yes, we honor all men, but we love the church. We love other Christians. We are attached to them. We, 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 we have a shared experience. We were, we're destined for hell, right? Our sins had condemned us, and we were on that path. We understand what that's like, and yet we've, we've come to see that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And so we look to him, we worship him, and we now come together as a family to worship him together and to help each other get home to heaven safely. So we honor everyone. We fear the brotherhood. Look at the third. Sorry, we love the brotherhood, and we fear God. We fear God. And this means that the motive for everything we do is this reverence, this reverence for the holy God who knows us and made us and worships us, or that made us to worship him. It means that we worship him, we revere him. He's the supreme one. He's over all things. And everything we do is not ultimately for our government or for an authority, but for God. I think the fundamental problem in our world is we don't fear God. That each person does what's right in their own eyes. Just as the Old Testament says that many people just did what was right in their own eyes. That comes from a lack of fear of God. As Christians, we fear God. And at the end of the day, His evaluation is what matters. Last, we honor the emperor. Christians are to be those who look at the ones in authority and we value them. We honor them. We treat them with dignity and respect. It is running rampant in our nation to look at the president, to look at those in authority in our government, and to just be all kinds of against them. Just to say things that are mean and vile 
sometimes just wicked things being said to those in authority. And I would think that goes directly against what is commanded here in the Word of God, that rather we ought to be a people who honor the emperor. We honor those in authority. Again, let's be clear, it doesn't mean we agree with every single thing that happens. That's not what he's talking about. But we honor. We honor. The reader of 1 Peter gets this letter and he goes, did I read that right? Honor the, the emperor? You, you want me to honor Nero? And there it is right there in the text. Honor even if they're against you. Even if they want to destroy you. You honor them. And you're subjecting yourself to them. One of the hard questions becomes, how far do we take this? <laughs> how far do we take this? Okay, well, you're telling us to be subject to the governing authorities. You're telling us to honor an emperor who wants to wipe us out. How far do we take this? Because eventually, if we keep following these directions, that might cost us our lives. Look at verse 18. Flowing out of the same context. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You have an unjust government. What do you do? The same thing. You subject yourself. You live free. And you honor those in authority. Look at verse 19. For this is gracious. It's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Friends, we need to think about this, all right? Because the Scripture says that if we, under unjust authority, must suffer or are uh, threatened with persecution, what do we do? We humble ourselves, we trust the Lord, we subject ourselves to His authority, and we suffer. We suffer with our hearts set on God. We endure sorrow and we suffer unjustly. And in that, God is pleased. Friends, this has happened in every century to Christians. And it has happened all across the globe wherever Christians have gone. Wherever the gospel has gone, they have had to do this. And they have stood up for their faith and they have said, kill me, but you will not kill the gospel. And they will be willing to die, but they will not use force to try to resist the government that is unjustly punishing them. It, it, it can almost seem silly to talk about this in America, but it's not. Because the reality is that we as Americans need to understand that though we have enjoyed a measure of peace in prosperity with no real persecution for a couple hundred years, that doesn't mean it's not coming. And it could come soon. And what do we do? We look at the gospel. We say that is what our Savior did. He came to suffer under unjust authorities so that those who killed Him, those who deserved to die, would be forgiven, saved, and redeemed. And if that's our model, we better be ready. Verse 21, just to remind you, and this is where we'll end. For to this, personalize this church, personalize this. For to this, you 
have been called. You, church, you, Grace Rancho, you have been called to this. You have been called for to this, this kind of unjust suffering, this kind of suffering that says, God, I'm trusting you, and and I'm going to take whatever comes, but I'm not going to break your word. I'm not going to resist your word. I'm going to submit myself to you, for to this you, Grace Rancho, have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, church, an example that you might follow in his steps. That's our example, and we have been called to follow it. And so if the government gets a vice grip around our necks, we say, may the Lord be glorified, may Christ be lifted high. I'm not going to resist the government. I'm going to do everything I can to preach his word and to live free and to do all the things he's called me within the realm of what God allows me to do. But I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to suffer. God calls me to suffer with Christ. We suffer with Christ. For the good of the gospel, for the greatness of his glorious name. So that in our suffering, the gospel is painted before the watching world. It's something so precious it's even more precious than life itself. Let's pray. So, Lord, this is, this is hard. There's, there's many hard things about this. Lord, I pray that of everything that was said this morning, what would stand out are the truths that come straight from your word. I pray that those would help us to be girded, to be prepared, to be equipped to face whatever the world brings our way. Help us to be a people who will not bow to the demands of the world. Help us to be a people who will not stop preaching the gospel. Help us to be a people who are willing to lay down our lives for the truth. Lord, let us be people deep hearts of love and compassion for the brokenness of the world around us. Lord, we can't do this apart from your help. So help us. Pray in Jesus' name.